Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies here at ADI. Uh, thanks you all so much for uh, taking the time to join us today for, I think, what is going to be a really uh, interesting uh, and really evocative conversation uh, with University of Virginia President Jim Ryan. The topic today is, should universities be more like corporations? Um, I think Jim has a take on it, which is, you know, fun and might take this in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, look, here's the rationale for today's event. Uh, it's well understood that American higher education has come under fire on a number of fronts. There's concerns about speech on campus. There's concerns about civility. Uh, there's concerns about issues like affordability and access. question is, what do you do about all of this? One of the more interesting places to try to sort these conversations out is the University of Virginia. Everybody in this room, I suspect, can remember the events of Charlottesville a couple of years past uh, when Unite the Right rally uh, led to horrific violence, um, weeks of uh, national discourse about the state of what was going on in our fraying uh, social fabric. UVA, of course, Thomas Jefferson's University, is in Charlottesville. Uh, Jim Ryan was not president at that time. He was named uh, the ninth president of the University of Virginia shortly after. Uh, I've known Jim a uh, little over 20 years. Uh, I started out, my first job as an academic was a professor of education at the University of Virginia. Uh, Jim was hired, I think, the same year as a new professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, so we've had the chance to know each other uh, for 20-plus years. I've had a chance to watch Jim's contributions uh, you know, with great admiration. He went on to be dean of uh, the Harvard University Graduate School of Education, uh, where, in classic Jim Ryan fashion, he gave a commencement address, which went viral, led to a major book offer. And I remember Jim saying, yeah, I got talked into writing this book because, you know, the advance was large enough. I'm like, it's a good problem we all should have. Anyway, Jim was uh, lured back to become the ninth president of University of Virginia. And uh, one of the things I think he's wrestling with is the role of the university, uh, not just how do we do uh, the blocking and tackling of academe, of teaching and research and service effectively, but what should be the models of universities looking forward, especially flagship institutions like UVA has so long been. With that, let me turn it over to President Ryan. Um, so, Rick, thanks for the introduction. Um, I want to thank AEI for inviting me um, and to thank Rick um, and your colleagues for the great work you do um, in the education space. As Rick said, uh, I am the ninth president of the University of Virginia. Um, some of you may wonder how a university that is 200 years old can only have nine presidents. Um, it's not because we all serve for a really long period of time. It's because Thomas Jefferson actually didn't believe um, that UVA should have a president. And so it was for over 100 years. Um, this is a fact I think about um, nearly every day because UVA seemed to have do, done just fine for a century um, without a president. Um, and when I don't think about it, um, someone reminds me uh, of the fact. So I've been president now for about a year and a half, um, which means that I'm qualified 
uh, to stand up here today and uh, tell you what I think about higher education. Um, before I talk a little bit about the topic, um, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about how I got here. Rick um, gave you a little bit of my background, but um, the real reason I'm standing here um, is because of rugby, um, and I'll explain. So I was planning to go to Berkeley Law School um, when I had uh, an offer to go play rugby in New Zealand and Australia as part of a, um, a team that was traveling from New England. And I decided that I would stay on after the tour, uh, which would require me to defer um, going to Berkeley. And I wrote them a letter asking to defer so I could join this rugby tour. And they wrote back and said, uh, you can't defer. Um, we only allow deferrals uh, in the event of unforeseen um, family crises. And I thought, if I had only known the, the rule, I would have written a very different letter. Um, <laughs> that's how I knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, anyway, when I came back, I applied more broadly. I got into UVA and got a scholarship and decided to go there. And that began my um, career at UVA. I had never planned to be a law professor. Um, a, 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 a professor of mine suggested it. Uh, and I had grown used to not doing anything in the summer. And so I thought this is something um, worth looking into. And so I did become a law professor um, after clerking. And I became very interested in the topic of law and education, which is how Rick and I first met each other. And I was consumed by a question um, that in some respects still occupies me today, which is why did the public education system work for me when it has failed so many others? I grew up in a small blue-collar town in northern New Jersey. Neither of my parents went to college. I went to public schools um, in my hometown and had some teachers who took an interest in me. And my parents cared a great deal about education. I was lucky enough to go to Yale as an undergraduate. And it totally changed my life. And, and to me, the public education system worked just the way it's supposed to. And so when I was a law professor, I spent most of my time researching the general topic of how does law structure educational opportunity. And so look at topics like school desegregation, school finance, school choice, special education. Out of the blue, I had an opportunity to become the dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I had been associate dean at the law school at UVA. And the one conclusion I drew from that experience was that I never wanted to be in higher education administration. Um, I took the job at Harvard because it seemed an opportunity to have a better impact and a greater impact than I could have as a law professor. Um, and I spent five great years there. It's a pretty amazing place. It's very mission driven. The offer to come back to UVA as president was also out of the blue. But one of the big things driving me was the sense that this is yet another opportunity to have an impact on education, in this instance, um, higher education. Um, so that uh, gives you a sense of how I came to be uh, here. Now to the topic about whether universities should be more like corporations. I have to say, this is not a speech um, I really expected uh, to give. In fact, I'm often more inclined to talk about the ways that corporations might want to be more like universities, at least when it comes to long-term success. Um, a little appreciated fact is that there are almost 900 American colleges and universities that are more than a century old, still in operation today, including 23 of the top 25. The Harvard Corporation is actually the oldest corporation in the Western Hemisphere, founded in 1650. And Harvard is still doing pretty well, as far as I can tell. Meanwhile, um, the average age of a company on the S&P 500 has fallen from almost 60 years in the 1950s to less than 20 years today. 
And of the 25 top companies by revenue, only four were founded before 1990. So obviously, universities are doing something pretty well when it comes to longevity. But there's at least one lesson that I think universities can learn from corporations. And that's what I want to talk about today. And that's the increasing importance of striving to be what you might call both great and good. For most of its history, the overriding purpose of corporations has been to maximize shareholder value, an idea that's often, though not always, synonymous with maximizing profits. As Milton Friedman said, there's one and only one social responsibility of business to engage in activities designed to increase its profits. But as you probably know, over the last year, and especially over the last few months, that conventional wisdom has begun to shift. A few examples. In August, the Business Roundtable, a group of nearly 200 CEOs of major companies, declared that the purpose of corporations should go beyond maximizing profits and include investing in their employees, the environment, and surrounding communities. Last month, Citi launched a $150 million fund to invest in companies with a positive impact on society. Microsoft pledged to become carbon negative by 2030. And BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, announced that going forward it will be investing in companies that focus on sustainability and disinvesting from companies that don't. Now, some of this shift is due to pressure. According to a study by the High Lantern Group, for example, the issue of climate change generated the highest degree of public pressure on corporations by activists, policymakers, and journalists last year. There's also positive incentives on companies to focus on improving the world around them. To give you one example, in December, the research firm Just Capital rated the largest U.S. companies on different qualities that appeal to most Americans. The companies that scored highest on doing good things, like Microsoft and IBM, had a higher return on equity than companies that didn't. As Rick would remind you, this is correlation, not causation. But it's not difficult to see or understand how a thriving community, happy employments, and a healthy environment could be good for the overall, over, um, uh, overall bottom line for businesses. So in some ways, the fact that corporations are focusing on what I'm calling being both great and good is not that surprising. Nonetheless, it's still instructive for universities. Like corporations, and here's the connection, like corporations, universities have for centuries defined their missions fairly consistently and somewhat narrowly, discover and disseminate knowledge, prepare students for some combination of citizenship, leadership, and employment. These remain vital goals, not just for universities, but for the health of our democracy, and they deserve strong support and protection. Nothing that I'm going to say should take away from that. But universities, like corporations, can sometimes forget that they're also large institutions. In fact, universities are effectively small cities, complete with hospitals, police forces, and power plants. At UVA, for example, we use over 350 million kilowatt hours of electricity each year, which is enough to power almost 32,000 American homes. We emit 250,000 tons of greenhouse gases, and we generate 15,000 tons of trash. And we're home to a city mostly of 18 to 22-year-olds, which I can tell you as president is slightly terrifying. The decisions that we make as a university affect not just our own academic communities, but also the communities in which we're located and in the increasingly fragile environment around us. 
And yet, as we pursue our core missions of research and teaching, it can be easy to treat these other issues as secondary or lose sight of them altogether. That's why, just as some business leaders have recognized that they ought to broaden their focus, I think it's time for university leaders to do the same. Like corporations, universities are facing criticism, as Rick suggested, from an increasingly skeptical public. Last year, for example, the Pew Research Center released a report showing that only half of American adults think colleges and universities are having a positive effect on the country, while about four in 10 say they're having a negative effect. This is a marked increase from only several years ago. This growing disenchantment stems from a number of causes, including the higher costs of getting a degree and the resultant debt load that students bear, as well, to a, as, well as to a sense that universities are monolithic enclaves of liberal thought. It also appears linked to a more general perception that universities are not simply elite, but elitist. And there's some truth behind this perception, to take just one statistic. While college graduation rates for middle and upper income Americans have risen dramatically over the last 50 years, today, less than 15% of students from the lowest socioeconomic bracket earn a bachelor's degree by age 24. More generally, I think there's a perception that elite universities are out of touch with the world around them. In my view, if we don't start paying close attention to how we operate as institutions, that perception will undoubtedly grow. In its statement that I referred to earlier, the Business Roundtable asserts that corporations should focus on several key things, delivering value to their customers, investing in their employees, and dealing fairly and ethically with their suppliers. The statement also pledges to support that corporations should support local communities by respecting the people who live there and protecting the environment, and it promises to generate long-term value for shareholders. If you substitute students for customers and the public for shareholders, I think this same list provides a useful framework that universities, for universities that are striving not just to be great, but also to be good. And when I say universities might want to be more like corporations, this is exactly what I mean. So let me go through the list. So the first, deliver value to students. We ought to be delivering value to our students, preparing them for their careers and for meaningful lives. This means paying attention to things like the tuition that we're charging, the net tuition, the debt that students are leaving with, and the time to graduation. We should also be focusing on the return on the investment that families make when they pay that tuition. We should be looking at factors like social mobility. Now, if you look at UVA, we do pretty well on some of these measures and not so well on others. Our graduation rate is 94%. That's the six-year graduation rate. The national uh, six-year graduation rate is 60%. Our debt is below the national average. 35% of our students leave with debt, and the average debt is $25,000 compared to the national average of $35,000. When you look at social mobility, um, we have a lot of work to do. You're probably familiar with the work by Raj Chetty that looks at how um, universities are doing with respect to social mobility, and the, um, the best universities are not doing so well. At, at UVA, we have about 13 to 14% of Pell students um, which compares unfavorably to our peers like UNC or the University um, of Michigan. So we have work to do 
um, in that respect. The second factor, invest in employees. For us, that means investing in faculty and investing in our staff. With respect to faculty, it means providing them the resources they need to live and to do their jobs. And sometimes it means being creative. In a place like Charlottesville, for example, if we want to attract the very best faculty, we have to be thinking about what are we going to do to help spouses of faculty find jobs. In a place like Charlottesville, that's not a simple thing to do. In the past, we just sort of figured that faculty would figure that out for themselves. We can no longer afford to do that. With our staff, we recently raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour, believing that that will help us both attract and retain good staff. And we're working on creating visible pathways for our staff to spend their careers um, at UVA. Dealing fairly and ethically with suppliers. It's a little known fact that universities purchase an awful lot of products from different suppliers. And we can have an enormous impact on our local and state economies based on how we deal with our suppliers. And this is an opportunity to invest in our communities by looking at um, local suppliers. Speaking of supporting local communities by respecting the people who are in there, the people who are part of that community, this is a really critical part. I mean, one of the things that the events of uh, August 2017 brought to the fore is that the relationship between UVA and the city of Charlottesville is not as strong as it could be. It's in our interest to have a strong relationship with the city of Charlottesville because our fates are intertwined. And so part of our efforts over the last year and a half is to figure out how to be a better neighbor to the city of Charlottesville. And one of the things that we did early on, right after I started, was bring together a community working group. Because one of the things that universities do really well is they go out into the community and they tell communities what their problems are. Um, and communities get a little tired of hearing that. Um, and so we brought in community members and asked them, if you had to list the top five issues that we might be able to work on together, what would they be? Now, if you had lived in Charlottesville like I had for 15 years, you wouldn't be surprised that the issues they raised were wages and employment, education um, and health care and the like. But that process of bringing people in and asking, what are your top priorities, and then pledging to work together to solve them is, I think, the way to begin strengthening the relationship between um, UVA and Charlottesville. Or another example, some of you may have read the story about the billing and collections practices of the medical center at UVA. We had very aggressive billing and collections practices. We have now modified them to make them um, more generous and, uh, frankly, more humane. Another issue, protecting the environment that the Business Roundtable suggests corporations should focus on, so should universities. We obviously teach and study about environmental resilience, but we also have an impact on the environment. So we just unveiled a plan for sustainability. We're pledging to be carbon neutral by 2030 and fossil fuel free by 2050. Now, on the latter promise, um, in order to make this really have some teeth to be fossil fuel free by 2050, I have promised our board that if we don't reach that goal, I will step down as president. Last, long-term value to the public. So corporations are pledging to have long-term value to their shareholders. We should be pledging to have long-term value to the public, especially as a public university. That means producing research that addresses some of our biggest challenges. And it means, in some respects, prioritizing 
research. So what we have done in our strategic plan is, is identify areas where we think we can make a contribution to a field that um, is incredibly important to society, including brain and neuroscience, environmental resilience, democracy, um, and precision medicine. It means preparing our students to be civically engaged, to lead and live in a global, globally connected and diverse world. It means being an engine of economic growth, both through our alumni and through commercializing the research that we produce. It means providing value to the public, providing a return on the investment that the public makes. Now, this doesn't cover everything that a university can do, but it's a useful framework to think about. It doesn't cover issues like free speech that Rick talked about, or it doesn't cover issues like athletics, but you can think about what it means to be great and good in athletics as well, or what it means to be great and good in terms of how students interact with one another. The reason why I think this is important for universities is twofold. First, I really believe that universities in the not too distant future are going to be judged differently than they are today. And that they're going to be judged based on some of these factors. They're going to be judged based on essentially the contribution that they're making to their students and to the world around them. One of the things that really puzzles me right now about rankings, and if you look at US News and World Report, you'll see this, is that there's a ranking for best universities and there's a ranking for best value universities. I think you're going to see, and I would love to see this, that those two things should be combined. That part of being best should be best value. Part of being best should be about the return on, on the investment. The other reason why I think this matters is that I think it's a smart thing to do for universities in terms of recruiting talent. My own view is that faculty, students, and staff are going to want to work at institutions in which they believe. That is, it's not going to be enough for us to simply say that teaching is great, there are research opportunities. More and more, I think you're going to see people wanting to be at a place that they think lives its values, that they think is not just excellent but also ethical, and that they think is serving a higher purpose. So it's strategically important for universities, just like I think it's strategically important for businesses to focus on these topics and to focus on being not just great um, but also good. Now, I should say, this doesn't mean the attempt to be great and good doesn't mean that universities are going to be perfect. They're, we're never going to be perfect, and people are going to make mistakes. And one of the challenges of saying that you want to be great and good is that every time you stumble, someone is going to say, well, that's neither great nor good. But that's fine. You should invite that kind of accountability, because it's only by identifying the goal that you can motivate people to at least aspire to that goal. And it's the aspiring and the striving towards the goal that's as important, I think, as the goal itself. So to close this out, absolutely, universities are and should be about discovering and disseminating new knowledge. They should be about preparing students for their careers and for meaningful lives. These should, these should undoubtedly continue to be our primary goals. But we are also large institutions that impact the environment, that shape our communities, and affect the lives of thousands of people at a time when other large institutions are taking a broader view of their responsibilities in order to regain the public's trust 
I think it's imperative that universities do so as well. And that is essentially what we're trying to do at UVA, where our governing board recently approved the adoption of a 10-year strategic plan called, as I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear, the 2030 plan, a great and good university. I hope you'll follow us on this imperfect journey. Jim, first off, terrific, love it. It, it seems to me um, the kinds of remarks that can and should have and might have been given 10 years or 40 years ago, because the principles you enumerate seem relatively timeless. So, but given that aspiration, why is it that the public um, is so dissatisfied with higher education today? What's changed from 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? Well, some of the things I mentioned before, um, you know, I think <clears throat> the escalation of uh, tuition and the explosion of student debt, which captures a lot of atten more attention today than I think it did 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, one of the things that has not yet been a part of the co that conversation, uh, which I think will be over the next few years, is time to graduation. Um, and completion. I mean, the idea that, it, that the six-year graduation rate, the six-year graduation rate is 60% is scandalous, if you think about it. And the student debt problem that you hear so much about is, is, is mostly a completion problem. Right? Those, the, the students who have the most difficult time paying back debt are ones who have taken on some debt but haven't earned a degree. Um, so that's number one. I think um, you know, the, the high-profile flare-ups around speech, um, which have captured a lot of attention, I think that's caused a lot of people to wonder what is going on on college campuses today. Um, and you know, the debates about conservative speakers and safe spaces and all that, I mean, I think it just um, plays into this overall narrative that something's going wrong um, on college campuses. And then I think um, another piece of this which I didn't talk about, um, is, uh, is this, well, I talked a little bit about the general sense that these places are elitist and for other people. They're not, they're not as much as universities talk about being accessible and affordable, they're, they're really not. You know, the, you know, I think about the town I grew up in, you know, the people there wouldn't have thought that, um, uh, you know, a, an elite university was, was for them. And so there's a sense that this is just the, this is just the other. So something um, and those other than cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so, so it's about, um, you know, the admissions process. So the Varsity Blues scandal, I think, just played into this idea that, you know, the system's rigged. Um, you know, when you talk about good, I mean, one of the obvious issues that arises is we've got competing notions of good. On some yeah. things, like sustainability and protecting the planet, it's easy to see where there's yeah. lots of common ground. On some of these other issues, like some of these free speech fights, yeah. one of the consequences is that they're a product of people having very polarized yeah. notions of what's... So how yeah. do you think about universities negotiating? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's, it's, you know, it's something that um, I thought about as we were you know, developing this idea and, and thinking about all the time. Um, I, I think that um, you have to... Um, you, you absolutely have to allow and encourage debates about what is good, right? That, that being great and good in some instances, like you say, is pretty easy to define, right? So environmental sustainability is a good example. Um, or take athletics, 
right? Um, I think one of, the, um, one of the strengths of UVA is that it has really strong athletic programs, but they have remarkable coaches who instill really good values in their players, right? So it's easy to, it's easy to understand what it means there. Um, but when it comes to something like speech, um, you know, you would never uh, suppose that there needs to be a uniform conception of the good so people can't debate about it. Instead, I think what it means, what being great and good means is you, you not only provide the opportunities for robust debate, but you take that as part of your mission, right? So when I talked earlier about one of the ways that we can provide long-term value to the public is we can prepare our students to be civically engaged. We can prepare our students to be comfortable confronting, debating, differing views. We can prepare our students to be comfortable living and learning from people who are, are different from them, where they absolutely will have different conceptions of the good. Mm. I mean, one of the tricks, I guess, and it's one of the sources of distrust, certainly, um, among those of us on the right in particular, but higher ed, is that we know from surveys, from self-declaration, that you know universities are not an ideological mirror of the American public. No. They, you know, faculty tend to have ideological predispositions that tend to the progressive side of the spectrum. University, the, the vision of professionals and of researchers generally tends to be more of a globalist mindset, that we're here members of a community of scholars and thinkers around the globe hmm. rather than of the town in which we live. Hmm. And certainly, I mean, that creates inevitable town-gown tensions, yeah. but particularly, I think, severe town-gown tensions when the ideology, when the rhythms and norms of the surrounding community or state um, are, host very different values and views and values. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I mean, it just strikes me as I'm interested how you think about this as you think about you know, working through this tension in different environments. Yeah, I thought you were going to go in a slightly different direction about it. Answer the one I would have um, gone. And then, yeah, yeah no, no. Um, so um, let me answer the question that I thought you were asking and then the question that you actually did. Um, I like so that. I thought you were going to ask, you know, like how can you, pro, you know, promote robust debate if you know, the, the, the faculty are primarily left of center? Um, you know, uh, I, think it's, I think it's slightly overblown, uh, the idea that there isn't robust debate. I was just in a classroom yesterday, two days ago on the Supreme Court, um, and you know, 12, 12 students in a seminar. And, and one of the things that, that I found just terrific is that the professor was clearly beloved by the students. Um, as, he was, as, as he was introducing the students, he said, okay, that's our uh, you know, wild Democrat, that's our conservative Republican. And the students were totally fine. Like, they were completely comfortable and totally happy having a debate. Um, I think it's incumbent upon faculty to make sure that they do whatever they can to bring in opposing viewpoints. Faculty aren't always successful at that, but I think that's, that's really important. In terms of the relationship with um, the rest of the community, so one of the, one of the um, and I can't speak to this generally, I can speak to it in Charlottesville. One of the things that I heard um, from a lot of community members is that the research that's done in Charlottesville, the results are, are rarely shared. Um, and so you have community members who are research subjects, but the benefits of that, re they don't see the benefits of the research. 
Um, and so that, that seems like a pretty straightforward problem to solve, right? So I think some of it is about um, figuring out ways to pair faculty interests in research with problems that local communities are facing. Uh, and so one of the things that we did just a few months ago was, was um, open um, the Equity Center, which is really focused on um, inequities in Charlottesville. And it's committed to working with community members to identify problems that they're trying to solve, not just problems that are of interest to researchers. I mean, you probably know this from schools research, right? There's often a mismatch between what a, um, an education researcher is interested in and the problem that the principal would identify, right? And this is sort of flipping that model on its head and going to the community and say, okay, what are, you, what are some of the problems you're facing and can we, um, through our research, help? And I think that can go an, an enormously long way to um, closing the divide between universities and the towns that they're in. It's a, way of, it's a way of sharing the resources that exist in universities. And one of the things that you know, I think ought to be the case and is, and is not always and, 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 and not nearly as often as it should be um, for someone who is just growing up in Charlottesville, it, you should feel like you have an unfair advantage because the University of Virginia is there. Mm. Yeah. On, on that, the Equity Center question, one thing that comes up is on some of the examples you were talking about, uh, I think it was precision research in biomedicine. Precision or, medicine, yeah. Precision medicine. Uh, those feel very far removed from some of the debates that you know, we argue about in a polarized country. Yeah. On the other hand, there are some of these issues that particularly in areas like criminal justice or anti-poverty or education or even public health that touch on hot-button issues around yeah. gender and uh, erase. And on those, you made the point that right, we've always wanted talented teachers to help students engage constructively and robustly on these issues. Yeah. But, but a related issue is, and again, I mean, you've been dean at Harvard Ed, you're president of UVA, you have a perspective on this. It feels to me from the outside that there are lines of research and lines of inquiry that are very hard to pursue on a bunch of these issues uh, at universities. That if you are enthusiastic about restorative justice and school discipline, for instance, yeah. that it's very easy to get a job, very easy to get funded. Yeah. That if you're skeptical of this, yeah. it cuts very differently. And I wonder when we talk about universities being seen as partners for communities with different values, as being seen as practical and authentic, how much of an issue is that and what can be done about it? Yeah, um, I, I, don't, I don't know, frankly, how big an issue it is. I mean, I know it exists, um, but I don't, I don't know how big an issue it is. I mean, in my view, it shouldn't be. I mean, you know, so that to, the, to the extent it exists, it's a problem, right? I mean, I think that universities are, ought to be the places in the country where it's fair to pursue any question. But you're right, some questions, and I'm, you know, I don't think this is anything new, um, but some questions are more in vogue than others for whatever reason, um, you know, uh, just sort of the current flavor or ideology. And that's not as it should be. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.